Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Last time on the yellow car. Someone approaches her from her left grabs her left arm and then shoots her. We started going through the crime scene photos to see where she was grabbed. So we knew to look for uh, DNA in that specific area. So we put him under surveillance to see what his routine was. We finally were able to get a clean sample off of our suspect and send it into a comparison. Oh, what'd they say? They cannot exclude the suspect from being a contributor. I'm sure you have days where you you ask yourself, why am I going through all this trouble? If I don't do it, it will eat me up. You know, it just takes a piece of you every single day. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. When we hear stories about horrific crimes like murder, our minds often jump to the most reasonable or logical explanation. We want to believe in the usual suspects, a person closest to the victim, perhaps a spouse or significant other. Do you remember strife in your parents' marriage earlier on? Do you remember them talking about divorce when you were in high school? I do. That's what most people think happened in the murder of Pune Gray's mom, Effie Antazari. And it makes sense. Pune's father went to prison for first-degree murder, portrayed as a classic marriage-gone-wrong scenario, a relationship fraught with turmoil. But I don't know that this was one of those cases where opposites may attract, but it wasn't a, I, did, I never thought it was a sustainable marriage. And I knew that early on. And I think they did too. So was Mike Antazari a dominant, controlling husband enraged that his wife of more than 20 years was divorcing him? Did he hate her so much that he would shoot her in broad daylight as she went to work at a daycare? Well, if you were like the detectives, the prosecutor and jury during Mike's trial, you'd say, yes. But what happens when years later, scientific evidence casts a bright light on Mike's conviction? When a daughter who won't stop searching for answers spends her entire life trying to prove her dad's innocence and another man's guilt. What if your dad did do it and you've spent 31 years for nothing? Well, the evidence doesn't show that he did. You know, we have to, you know, it's not about what I think or what you think or what anybody thinks, frankly. It's about, it's what my mom tells us happened to her, right? So we have to let the evidence say what happened. Um, and the rest really doesn't matter. 
And the evidence doesn't show that it was my dad. In the end, we want to believe in right and wrong. We want to trust the process that when it comes to crime and punishment, there are no mistakes. It makes us feel safe because it's uncomfortable to admit there could be a darker truth that a potentially innocent man spent more than a decade behind bars and a killer could still be walking free all these years later. I'm your host, Ashley Korslin. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. So it is almost 11 o'clock on February 12th, and it's a Wednesday morning. I'm. Uh, it's my first time going to the place Effie Entazari was killed. This is happening before the coronavirus pandemic, before working from home, and before Effie's daughter, Pune Gray, got news about the DNA of a possible suspect in the murder. I've asked Pune to meet me here. I'm driving through the northeast part of Vancouver, Washington. I pass by a gas station with a big sign for Juul vaping products next to an even bigger sign advertising biscuits and gravy and chicken gizzards. Just beyond that, I pass a strip mall with a tobacco store, ironically, next to a dental office. And when I get to the Alder Creek Apartments, I park in one of the spaces out front of apartment B12. And um, this is the exact spot that Pune Gray's mom, Effie Ntazari, was shot and killed just over 30 years ago. And she was shot right in this parking lot and parked right next to where she had walked out to her car to leave for work in the morning. And someone shot her six inches from her head at basically point blank range. And she died in the parking lot here. And Pune's about to pull up and show me the crime scene and uh, where it all happened and kind of walk me through it so I have a better understanding of what happened all those years ago. Effie died on May 1st, 1989. Today, you'd never know what happened in this very parking lot. The apartments are newly painted in different bright colors, red and blue and green. My jacket on. It is cold, it is like 40 degrees and rainy. It's gloomy out, just super cloudy. Not many people, there's some people walking around the parking lot. They've kind of looked at me funny with my headphones on, probably wondering what I'm doing with a microphone and a recording device here. There she is. Probably could have parked better than this, but yeah. <laughs> Hi. Before I can say anything else, yeah. check something. Sure. Do you want me it's to measured. Yep. Well, you're at 26 inches, and they've measured 26 inches between the blue truck and my mom's car. Oh. Pune whips out a tape measure and starts calculating the space between my car and the one right next to me. So where I pulled up and parked, this is where your mom parked. Yes. And her body was found where? Right here. So if you walk over, she had a car keys in her hand and she's getting into her car. And he walked up right beside her, right where you're at, grabbed her arm. Based on the photos, it looks like 
she, you know, when someone grabs your arm, your mm -hmm. first reaction is, hey, what's going on? Pull so, away. Well, yeah, and you or, move your arm up, right? Sure. So she would have gone into some kind of a defensive move. He shot her. She was looking right at him. Had to have been looking right at him. She takes a few steps forward and motions how she thinks the killer made his getaway. This is his way of exit. And so he lays her down because you see how tight it is. Yeah. He has no choice but to lay her down to step over her. We assume to get into the yellow car. And do you think he was the passenger then? Well, we think there was a driver and a shooter. So the shooter hears the driver hears the pop which is his indication that the fire, you know. He backs up, goes past where my mom's body would have been laying. The neighbor says he pulls up, slows down right here. We assume the shooter gets in the car and he takes off. Then she grabs her iPad to show me photos from the crime scene. I'm gonna show you her arm. Is it tough to look at these? I know you've looked at them a million times. But. You know, yes and no. Mm -hmm. It depends. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I would think standing like literally right where your mom took her last breath has got to be emotion well, evoking or tough. It is. And there are times when I get really upset and I break down crying, but it doesn't help my mom. You know, at, at this point, where I'm very close, um, and I gotta focus. You know, and I've been saying that to myself for 30 years. <laughs> focus. But you're closer than ever. I'm closer than ever. I mean, I feel really good about where we're at. I feel really good about it. So. I um, stare at her intently as she talks, admiring her relentless drive to put the pieces of this complicated, convoluted jigsaw puzzle together. Not only does she want to find who killed her mom, she's on a mission to prove her dad didn't do it. And she's been at this 31 years. That would feel like a lifetime for most of us. As I try to wrap my head around it all, it makes me question my own dedication. I wonder to myself, would I go to these lengths? How far would I go? for my family's honor. The biggest clue Pune hopes will break open the case is that new DNA evidence potentially connecting a man to her mom's murder. We're calling him John Doe for now, and we'll get into much more detail later on about what led Pune to him and his alleged motive. But right now, Pune needs more testing done to make a stronger case against him. This gets complicated, but it's crucial. According to Pune, the DNA recovered from the sweater Effie was wearing during the murder is a mixture of Effie's DNA and an unknown male's DNA. When Pune's private investigators recovered an old razor blade from John Doe's trash, they were able to retrieve his DNA. And when that was compared to the mixture from the sweater, the lab came back with this. It's a high likelihood the two samples belong to the same man. Her lab, Cybergenetics, discovered this through a DNA analysis method called probabilistic genotyping. 
The company's software is called TrueAllele, and it uses statistics and algorithms in DNA profiling to determine the statistical probability someone's DNA is present in a particular evidence sample. They were able to go in and see that our suspect's DNA is there, and they, I mean, I'm not a DNA guru, but they said they could see the suspect's DNA peaks. The numbers are good. I mean, the numbers are good right now, and they're actionable right now, and they're like, we do cases with less numbers than this. What she means by actionable is that it could be enough for an arrest. At least, that's her hope. But to get stronger results, she needs to get a clean sample of her mom's DNA to compare against the mixture from the crime scene. Cybergenetics would work to identify parts of the mixture that belong to Effie, leaving them with a clearer look at the remaining DNA profiles. According to Cybergenetics, most forensic samples are mixtures containing DNA of two or more people. The company promises to unmix the DNA mixture using the true allele technology. No human interpretation, no human error. Welcome to Cybergenetics True Allele Casework. Here's a clip Cybergenetics shared on YouTube. True Allele solves for genotypes by trying out many possible solutions. For each contributor, the computer proposes a genotype allele pair. Adding up different amounts of these genotypes forms a pattern that can help explain the data. I'll be honest, I understood almost nothing in the video. To say this is complicated stuff is putting it mildly, and science isn't my strong suit. So I decided to interview a DNA expert with no connection to the Entazari case. My name is Dan Crane. I'm the interim dean and chief administrative officer of Wright State University's Lake Campus. Dr. Dan Crane is a professor and the president and co-founder of a consulting company in Ohio called Forensic Bioinformatics. He's worked in this field since the early 1990s, almost since the advent of DNA testing. His company has reviewed some of the most high-profile DNA cases in the world. I asked Dr. Crane about probabilistic genotyping. Pretty much from the very beginning within the United States, courts have expected and, and effectively demanded that if an individual is included as a possible contributor to a sample, that that finding is only admissible, can only be considered by a jury if uh, a reliable statistical weight can be attached to that finding. In other words, probabilistic genotyping is, was and is still typically used to attach a statistic to findings where human experts can only agree that the test results are so complicated that they are inconclusive or uninterpretable. If you were to sit in a courtroom trial, you'd more than likely hear an attorney boil the results down to this. The suspect's DNA matched the evidence sample found at the crime scene, with matched being the key word. It makes sense, and it's easy for a jury to understand. But you won't likely ever hear a scientist or DNA expert speak in declarative terms like that. To them, it's all about the likelihood of someone's DNA being detected in a sample. You really need to be able to attach a statistical weight to the finding that somebody could be the source of DNA for an evidence sample. You can't just say that they're a match because some matches uh, are exceedingly rare and other matches are quite common. It's always reported in terms of a likelihood ratio. 
And it's the likelihood that one hypothesis is true as opposed to a competing hypothesis. Dr. Crane says currently the most widely used probabilistic genotyping software is from a company called Starmix. Starmix is a software tool that allows forensic scientists to access more of the information in DNA profiles and bring that to bear on criminal investigations and the judicial system. This is a marketing video I found on YouTube. Particularly complex mixtures of two or more individuals. It creates millions of conceptual DNA profiles within the software and then determines who the contributors are to that mixture for comparison with individuals. Dr. Crane says StarMix controls about 80% of the market share in the U.S. and possibly 60% worldwide. He says cybergenetics true allele technology is the second most popular in America, and there are dozens more companies with similar software around the world. Many state crime labs are currently using probabilistic genotyping for criminal trials. But there are dozens of admissibility cases in the U.S. where defendants have fought to gain access to the source codes used in probabilistic genotyping. Some defendants want the DNA evidence tossed out of court because they feel the process is too secretive and the results are unable to be vetted. Essentially, they want to be able to fact check the methods used by companies linking their DNA to a crime. And there are even DNA experts who are skeptical. My name is Dr. Monty Miller. Dr. Monty Miller is one of them. I am uh, director of forensic DNA experts um, in Southern California. Dr. Miller has worked in DNA since 1998. He thinks probabilistic genotyping has some great attributes, but says there are too many faults. He's even planning on publishing an article about why his industry should stop using it altogether. I think that it should not be used to generate, you know, statistics on reports. I think that uh, traditional DNA statistics are based on concrete facts. And I think that the, the probabilistic DNA genotyping is a manner of interpreting the DNA that I think gives the prosecution the best case scenario. I think that it, it, it's, it's partially based on speculation where traditional DNA is based on concrete facts. So I think that, you know, they use this, the math called a Bayesian likelihood ratio, and it requires you to put in certain conditions, you know, how many people are in the mixture and, and, and things of that nature specific to, you know, what they're doing. And I think most of the choices they make are good for the prosecution and they're not good for the defense. And so I think it's, it's a form of, it's a subtle form of data, you know, manipulation. Do you feel this technology has led to wrong convictions of people? There's absolutely no question in my mind that it has. In cases that I'm dealing with now and, and, and have dealt with in the past, they're done. Ones I'm dealing with now and ones I'm going to deal with in the future this is a stake in 80% of the, in 50% of the crime labs. These numbers are wrong. And they're all pumped way up. That's, That's what I'm saying. 
My point in telling you all of this is simply to explain that probabilistic genotyping is up for debate among experts in the field, but currently it's generally accepted as reliable in the scientific community and continues to show up in criminal court cases. And Pune and her team are very confident the method will not only provide accurate DNA results, but spur investigators to take a second look at her mom's murder. And that brings us back to Pune's mission to get a sample of her mom's DNA for cybergenetics. The sample will help the lab better unmix the DNA mixture found on Effie's sweater. Pune's issue, though, is convincing local officials to release a sample of Effie's blood, which is stored in evidence. So in a perfect world, let's say they, you know, approve that, they get you your mom's DNA, you guys test it and they the lab has a fuller profile to compare um you know your moms with your suspects is your thought that once it's conclusive enough um with the suspect's dna as a match that the sheriff's office would then have enough to reopen the case or go interrogate him or what is your hope well they have enough now um but having said that i understand that we should wait for the full report to come in and, and then what would they do with that? Like, what do you expect them to do at that point? What I expect them to do is to go pick him up. And, and arrest him. him. Yep, that's what I expect. And I expect them not only to arrest him, but I'm expecting that we're going to be assigned a really, really, really good detective that's going to get him to talk. For the last few weeks, she's been working with the Clark County Prosecuting Attorney's Office and the Sheriff's Office to release a sample of Effie's blood. But so far, she says she's been hitting roadblocks. And um, so now we're in the phase of we're waiting for them. <laughs> Let's pause for a minute because I know what you might be thinking. Okay, so what? They found a man's DNA on Effie's sweater. It doesn't mean he killed Effie. Maybe his DNA got there somehow before the murder. And look, I'm with you. I've had the same thoughts myself many times. But Pune assures me that as the case develops and you learn more about John Doe and his possible motive, you might start to see things differently. Especially considering the case against Pune's dad was largely circumstantial. Or maybe at the end of all of this, you'll say, nope, Mike was totally the killer. I'm still unsure sometimes, and I've brought it up to Pune before. Do you ever lay awake at night though, wondering what if we've misread the evidence or what if there's a misinterpretation and in six months the, the DNA testing could lead you back to your dad? Do you ever what if that and wonder? No, and the DNA testing, it isn't matching with my dad. Okay, let's take a break from all the DNA talk and go back in time 40 years to learn more about the Antazari family. The year is 1979. Sony just released The Walkman and My Sharona by The Knack is topping the charts. Rocky II is in theaters, Jimmy Carter is president, and a new home costs $62,000. Pune Gray is 11 years old. Her Iranian family has settled in the predominantly white city of Vancouver, Washington. They've just returned to the U.S. after living in Iran for the last six years. And Pune, well, she's busy adjusting to life as a preteen in America. 
did you consider your upbringing to be um, like upper class, middle class, just like an average family home? I mean, what, what was your, your life like? It was average. I mean, I thought it was average. I mean, I knew my parents had money because my dad in Iran had ended up opening up his own business and had become quite successful. So I thought we were okay. Pune's father, Mohammed Antazari, went by Mike. Her mother, Eftikar Antazari, went by Effie. They were a striking couple with black hair and brown eyes. Effie was tiny, under five feet tall, and no more than 100 pounds. Mike was slender and only about a half foot taller than Effie. Old photos show him often wearing well-tailored suits and Effie in trendy dresses with her hair meticulously styled. So um, walk me through uh, your early years, what, what you remember of your parents, their personalities, their parenting styles, that sort of thing. Well, my father's an engineer, was an engineer. And so he was the analytical one, <laughs> the one who kept everything on task, um, made sure my grades were good, um, planned out my college, my career. <laughs> that kind of a parent. <laughs> strict, very strict. Like I couldn't wear short skirts, <laughs> no makeup. Uh, didn't want me to be a cheerleader, but I was, and my mom covered for me. Of course, the girls coming to practice at the house <laughs> was probably a giveaway for him, but he never said anything. My mom, on the other hand, was really easygoing, laughed all the time, nothing ever bothered her. Thought everybody was sweet, trusted everybody and everything, and um, loved to dance, liked cooking. They were very different. Um, if I had a problem, I'd go to my mom. If uh, I needed help taking the graduate exam, I went to my dad. My grades had come. My mom knew what my grades were, but I was hiding them from my dad. So they were very... Um, very different, but good for me because I got the best of both worlds. Both Mike and Effie grew up in Tehran and came separately to America for college. They met in California in 1967 and had Pune the following year. They eventually moved back to Iran where they welcomed their second child, a son named Puya. Then in 1979 came the Iranian Revolution. Millions of Iranians protested a regime that was seen as brutal and corrupt. Many people fled the country, including the Entazaris. They were on one of the last flights out of the country before the government shut down airports. Once back in America, the family settled in Washington state, where the couple obtained U.S. citizenship through the naturalization process. Mike became an engineering professor at a local community college, and Effie opened up a daycare. It was important to both of them to teach their children about their Iranian heritage. What was family life like? Did you guys have dinners together? Did you get a sense of your Iranian culture in, in your home? Was that really important? Um, it, yes, I did get a sense of it. <laughs> they wanted me to get a sense of it. So when we were in Iran, they wanted me to speak English because they didn't want me to forget. And then when we came to the U.S., I had to speak, they wouldn't let me speak American to them, and English to them. I had to speak Iranian or Persian. And they wanted me to attend, they would have huge parties almost every weekend. 
with dancing and my dad had played the violin and um, he made homemade wine that I thought people liked. <laughs> I took a sip of it once. It wasn't so good. Pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and these are parties with other uh, Iranians who lived in Vancouver? Yes. Yeah, it was a very small community back then, but yes, they were very social and tended to have a lot of parties. And my mom loved cooking and uh, she cooked every day. Huge meals. Oh. Hey, is this Vicki? Yeah. Hi, Vicki, it's Ashley. Oh, hi. How are you doing today? I talked to Pune's childhood friend, Vicky, about her memories of the Entazaris. And what do you remember of Effie? Oh my gosh, she was a tiny little soft-spoken, gentle little thing. Just always cooking and music and parties and just, they were very, they had a lot of, they always had a lot of friends over, a lot of family. There was always something going on in their house. Just, just a very soft-spoken little woman. Did you ever notice um, Mike as being kind of that, how he was characterized throughout the trial as sort of being a controlling, um, dominant husband? I don't think I ever saw anything like that. I just know that he was very protective of Pune. I mean, having probably having him grow up in Iran and Turkey, um, coming here to America, you know, the way girls would dress. I mean, we weren't dressing, like, too terribly back in 1980, but he really did not want us to leave. To wear, like, I don't even think he knew Pune was a cheerleader, so she had to, like, tra she had to, like, we we had to put our, change our, change it, we had to leave in pants and put our, put our dresses on or whatever we were wearing out for the night in the car because he just thought we should be, you know, kind of, kind of covered up a little bit, I guess. He was just that, that was the only thing that really stood out. We, we thought it was, we, we always thought it was kind of funny. Um, and you never noticed any discord in their marriage from what you recall? Oh, no. No. He was happy-go-lucky, always playing the, always playing his violin. He, he always made wine. I mean, they seemed, they seemed pretty, pretty normal, like any normal happy married couple. It might not have been visible to those on the outside, but behind closed doors, Mike and Effie encountered their share of hard times in their relationship. And this was no surprise to Pune. You know, they were very different. Like I said, my dad was an engineer. He had a math scholarship. You know, one of those brain people. <laughs> I didn't get that. <laughs> but he was super analytical, very logical, and then you have my mom, who was fly by the seat of her pants. Mm -hmm. But because of the culture, I think my mom didn't want to get a divorce. She thought that, and, and back then, you know, right. um, she thought that would look, people would look down on her for that. And, and I think she really loved my dad. I was just talking to my mom's friend actually a week ago, and she said, your mom was totally in love with your dad, but she couldn't change him, right. you know? So, but I remember early on uh, them talking about getting a divorce and talking to me about it. And I mean, it was fine. So I always expected them to do that. And 
they had said that once I left for college that they would most likely separate. They kind of stayed together for you and your brother. They did. Yeah. Um, The couple didn't just talk about divorce. Effie filed three times. The first was in 1981. She abandoned that petition later that year. Then in 1984, Effie filed again. She then abandoned that petition months later. And the final time she filed was in 1988. Okay. I was Mike's divorce attorney. My name is Karen Didona. I tracked down Mike's divorce attorney, Karen Dedona, who's now retired after practicing law for more than 30 years. And uh, I believe it was 1989 that I represented him. And uh, the, uh, the case was progressing okay. It was rather contentious, but not the worst I've ever seen. She was just a rookie attorney when she took on Mike's divorce case. At the time, Pune was away at college. Effie had moved into her own apartment, and Mike stayed in the family home with Puya. What was their relationship like from what you remember? What was their divorce? Uh, how did that all start? Um, yeah, there was, um, there was a battle over property, but not much else. I, I didn't think it was off-state contentious, but I was a young attorney at the time. I was only in my, my, I believe, my second year of practice. So everything seemed uh, spectacular to me then. <laughs> but, um, no, they were just kind of an average divorce. There was, yeah, as I said, some, some disputes over property, but it wasn't fraught with daily drama or anything like that. During the divorce proceedings, Mike and Effie went back and forth about how to divide up assets, divvy up their debts, and how to handle custody of Puya, who was 14. I asked Karen if she remembered any allegations of emotional or physical abuse between Mike and Effie. You don't recall there being much of, uh, I guess, discord between the two as far as anything physical between Mike and Effie, nothing like that? No, no, nothing like that at all. And it's, you know, it's fairly common for one spouse or the other to excuse the other of being abusive, um, especially if it's a custody fight. <laughs> but no, there was nothing like that. Nothing. It would have come out in the divorce right. for sure if there had been. The couple's assets included an estimated $500,000 in property. They owned three rental properties, the family home, another property worth over $100,000, and a bank account with more than hundred grand. During the divorce, Mike and Effie argued over who would collect rent from their rental properties. They even had a contested hearing about it during the summer of 1988. Then in January of 89, four months before Effie's murder, things got heated. The two decided the divorce could not be settled amicably, so they set a trial date of May 9th, 1989. So basically, they couldn't settle, meaning they couldn't amicably um, sort of settle their, their um, the property and whatever else, so they, they had to go to trial to have that done. Yeah. Here's Karen again. Yeah, and that's, it's more common nowadays um, to come to a settlement. I think that people just generally have become disenchanted with the uh, the process, and the and trials are costly, very costly, uh, and not just in terms of money. They are 
emotionally costly. They actually just take it out of you. And you come out feeling like nobody really wins. Um, yeah. But Mike and Effie didn't get the chance to go to trial. They were set to have depositions on May 2nd. Effie was murdered May 1st. In addition to the ongoing divorce proceedings, court documents revealed that the couple had been entangled in a lawsuit with Mike's brother, Magsud Antazari. Magsud claimed he lent Mike and Effie more than a quarter million dollars and he wanted it paid back. But here's the thing, Effie denied owing any money. Mike, on the other hand, admitted to borrowing not a quarter million dollars, but half a million. Effie felt this was all an attempt to keep her from getting half of the couple's joint assets in the divorce. Soon, they all went to court, where Effie again denied owing the money. On the day of her murder, the litigation between Effie, Mike, and Mogsud was still ongoing. So there you have two elements of motive, money and divorce. And that did not look good for Mike. But there was more than just motive leading police to Mike and Tazari. There was a gun in the back seat of Mike's car. And it wasn't just any gun. It was the same type that killed Effie. This is the beginning of the end. Next time on The Yellow Car. Well, that sucks. So apparently they only keep the audio or video recordings for 15 years, and then they can destroy them. So it was just a lot of smoke and mirrors. I said to my dad, I said, well, that's good. They've got suspects, right? So we're going to find out what happened. And he said, well, I think that might be us. <laughs> Who's us? Like him and I. You. Me. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff.